Give here the word of God, Malachi chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Malachi writes, The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, How have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may build, but I will tear down and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. The sense of reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, I've, I've kind of had my eye on Malachi for a while now. For some reason, I don't know if this happens to other pastors, but uh, you get a book stuck in your head even while you're preaching on another book, and you kind of your mind doesn't wander. You know, I wasn't wandering when I was thinking about it, but uh, I couldn't couldn't get shake the idea of going through this book. I've long had a, an admiration for all the Bible, but the Minor Prophets. Uh, you know, it's funny. The Old Testament very often we as as believers can sometimes fall into a neglect of the Old Testament for one reason or another. You know, sometimes we think it's hard to understand, uh, especially the prophetic books like this. But, you know, when you read the minor prophets, they're, they're short. They're called minor not because they're less important. They're called minor because they're what? They're shorter. When you read Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel and Daniel, they're much longer books. These, some of the minor prophets are one chapter long, like Obadiah. This one is barely four chapters long. Uh, Jonah is four chapters long. They're easy to read through at one sitting. And as, as old as they are, as long ago as they've been written, you know, in some cases, uh, you know, what, uh, 2,500 years ago or so in, in this case, we might be tempted to think, well, what possible relevance could a book like this have to us today? And yet when you read it, you, we strangely find that it's as timely as it's ever been. The same kind of sins, the same kinds of struggles and difficulties uh, we struggle with just as much in many, in many cases, as, as they did. And so it's, it's, it's all of God's word is always very timely, but I've always found, at least in recent years, uh, the older I get, the minor prophets are very much uh, relevant and applicable for us in our day. So Lord willing, we'll learn a lot as we go through it. Uh, Malachi in the Hebrew literally means my messenger. The I is the, the, the possessive pronoun, so to speak. It's so it's, it's God saying, in a sense, he's his messenger. And it's a fitting name for a man who was God's messenger to his wayward people, Israel. Uh, Malachi is the last book, as you know, of the Old Testament. And the prophet Malachi himself was, you may know, was the last of a long line of Old Testament prophets all the way until John the Baptist. 400 years, there was essentially, as far as new prophecy, silence from God. You know, when you read that on the paper, that no, you have 400 years. That's longer than our country has existed. I mean, imagine, imagine 400 years, you know, roughly 10 generations of Israelites back at home, resettled in their land with really no word from God other than what had already been written down. It would be until the time of John the Baptist in the first century till God would send another prophet. You know, imagine having the prophets, the messengers of God, for hundreds and hundreds of years, even well over a thousand years if you start with Moses, and then nothing. They have radio silence, so to speak, from God 
for 400 years, no word from God. I mean, imagine the context. We're going to see as we go through this, uh, Malachi was one of, we call them the post-exilic prophets. This is after the people had gone through the Babylonian exile and were brought back. They rebuilt the temple. Things seemed like they were going well. And then silence until John the Baptist. Why would God do that? Why didn't Matthew start 10 years after Malachi? Why was there such a long gap and delay? We really don't know. The Bible doesn't say John Calvin ventures what I think is a good educated guess when he writes the following. He says, when therefore God left his people without prophets, it was either to show his great displeasure as during the Babylonian exile or to hold them in suspense that they might with stronger desire look forward to the coming of Christ. You think about the the suspense building up, because the next thing that was going to happen, as we know from the Gospels, was the coming of Christ, the coming of the long-awaited Messiah that Malachi, among others, prophesied about in in his prophecy. Whatever the case, the fact that Malachi was God's last word until the coming of Christ should give, I think, this book, as brief as it is, uh, an, added, an added weight. Like all of God's word is important. All of God's word is inspired, inerrant, authoritative. Anything God says should get our attention. But I think the context with which Malachi, in which Malachi was given should give it a little extra added weight to our attention. You know, everything God's word says is given for our instruction and benefit. Uh, but when God gives his last word, or in this case by uh, the, one, of the, one of the most recent books on the, the post-exilic prophets calls it the next to last word. Uh, if it's God's last word, which is Christ, or his next to last word in Malachi, I think that should make us sit up and take notice. You know, what the Lord says here must have been awfully important for God to give this as his last word to his people before sending his son to die for our sins. Malachi, again, was one of the post-exilic prophets a very short group as far as we know, that would be Haggai, Zechariah, and and Malachi, the last three books of your Old Testament. And what that means is these prophets, as short as they were, prophesied to the people of Israel after the exile was over, after the exile of the northern kingdom to Assyria was over, and after the exile of the southern kingdom of Judah in Babylon was over. Uh, After that happened, uh, the people had begun to return to the land of promise, you know, and they, they rebuilt the temple. Some prophets, if you know, you almost, you know, they talk about needing a scorecard at a baseball game. Nobody does that anymore. But you almost need a scorecard to remember who's where and what time, which prophets prophesied under what circumstances. You think about Isaiah and Jeremiah. They were sent to God uh, to, to minister to the people, to warn them before the exile, and even in some cases during those exiles in order to call the people of Israel and Judah to repentance. You know, the exiles that God sent them into, to Assyria and Babylon, those were chastisements of God. Those were judgments of God upon his own people for idolatry. Now, you you could say in some ways the prophetic books, you know, the Bible talks about judgment begins where? With the household of God, Peter says. Well, that's, that's writ large in the prophets. You know, the nations of the world, even Babylon and Assyria, the ones whom God allowed and even used to bring his people into captivity, uh, they probably were pretty haughty about it. They were probably pretty prideful about it, but they shouldn't have been. They should have been aware that if judgment begins with the household of God, what was going to become of them who hated God and worshipped false gods 
and idols. Yet we know from history that most of the Israelites did not heed the warnings of Isaiah and Jeremiah and the others. And so both the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah at different times were they were spewed out of the land. God had warned them about this in Deuteronomy. If you follow false idols, if you are unfaithful to the covenant, what's going to happen? You're going to be out of the land. The land is going to spew you out. It's exactly what God caused to happen, sent them to uh, Assyria and then to Babylon. But around 536 B.C., King Cyrus of Persia, who had conquered Babylon, uh, what did he do? He issued an edict allowing the Jews to return to their land and to rebuild. And so they rebuilt the temple. They rebuilt the walls. Uh, The temple was rebuilt around 516 B.C., the Levitical priesthood, the sacrifices were reinstituted. Now, you think about that. How They had been in Babylon and Assyria for decades. Like, the hand of God was heavy upon them. No sacrifices. I mean, imagine what that must have been like. They had to worship God in a foreign land, without the temple, without the sacrifices. And then God, by his grace and mercy, sent them back and let them rebuild the temple. That should have been seen and gratefully received as a great blessing from God and a sign of his covenant faithfulness and love toward them. They should have been rejoicing over the fact that God had had done that. But when you read Malachi, you find out that it was far from the case. They didn't look at that as some great blessing of God, or if they did, it was very short-lived. They looked at God as being still harsh to them, as not blessing them the way they thought they should have been Blessed. And so let's look through our text. The very first thing that we see in these, this brief opening passage from Malachi's prophecy is the burden of the word of the Lord. The burden of the word of the Lord. And this is really the theme of the whole book. Look at verse 1. The ESV puts it this way. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. So the ESV puts it as oracle. The King James uh, puts it a little bit differently. And I think in this particular case probably a little bit more helpfully, even if it might sound confusing at first, when it says the burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi or by the hand of of Malachi. That that probably sounds strange to our ears, which is probably why many modern translations don't render it as burden, but I think we're going to see that it's a very fitting translation. Calvin notes that the Hebrew word here, which is Massah, Uh, really does convey the idea, not just of prophecy in general. When you hear the word oracle, you kind of think of, you know, just a word from God, a prophecy of God, as important as that is. But he says it conveys a, a very specific kind of prophecy, which is a burden. Here's what he says. Whenever this word is expressed, there is ever to be understood some judgment of God. And it appears evident from Jeremiah chapter 23 that this word was regarded as ominous. If you read Jeremiah 23, that word is used over and over and over again. It, was, it kind of became something of a, of a, I don't know if you call it an insult or a, a byword about the prophets always bringing bad news. Oh, here, the, here comes the prophet again, giving us another one of his burdens. Always, there's always something bad to say, never something positive. Um, you know, there wasn't anything positive and encouraging by the prophets in some, in some way. So... Th- when you heard the word burden that, that, that God used here through Malachi, it had the idea of something rather serious. You know, have you ever, you know, in your, in your family or in your friends had somebody, maybe your wife or husband or someone say to you, we have to talk. What kind of conversation usually follows that? 
it's not usually happy-go-lucky and yay. You know, it's usually, uh-oh, here it comes. You know, what, what did I do this time? Um, yeah, you know, we have a figure of speech that we still use, some of us. We talk about getting something off our chest. That's a burden. And usually when you're getting something off your chest, it's not something pleasant or easy to say. Well, this Malachi, you could say, by the use of this word, in a sense, is God getting something off his chest to his people. God doesn't have a chest. He doesn't have a body, but it's a figure of speech. That's kind of what God is doing here. He's saying, hey, listen up. We have something to talk about. And that's what the substance of this entire book, not just the first part of it, is. And so, you know, many in the church, and this has always been the case, have tended, I think, to prefer pastors and preachers who speak smooth, pleasant things. You know, if you want, if you want to fill a church, there's an easy way to do it, uh, and that's, that's, that's the way to do it. And it's probably always been the case back in, in Paul's day in 2 Timothy 4, verses 3 to 4, back in the first century, you know, 2,000 years ago almost. Here's what Paul says to Timothy. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. Like, they can't bear it. They won't put up with it. They will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. There's a lot in that statement. They won't endure sound teaching. They won't stomach it. They won't put up with it. And having itching ears, it sounds like a dog. You ever have a dog and you scratch his ears? That's what he wants. It's, it's a picture kind of like a dog. Not There's anything wrong with dogs. And then he says they will accumulate or pile up for themselves teachers, and there's the phrase, to suit their own passions. That tells you why they won't endure sound teaching. It tells you why, really, the ultimate reason why they're attracted to certain kind of teachers and preachers because those teachers and preachers are telling them, one, what they want to hear, and two, what suits the way they already want to live, suiting their own passions. They will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths, into untruth. It kind of brings to my mind, if you know your Old Testament a little bit, remember King Ahab, wicked King Ahab? What did he call, what did he call Elijah? When Elijah came, 1 Kings 18, 17, he called Elijah the troubler of Israel. Every time Elijah came, trouble followed. And instead of the king and the people saying, oh, he's a spokesman for God, he's God's prophet, maybe we're doing something wrong. They say, well, obviously every time the prophet speaks, something bad happens. It's the prophet's fault. He's the real trouble going on here. Now, he called him that. Why? Elijah, like the other prophets, very often had very unpleasant, difficult things to say. Because what, you know, if I could ask you, I won't ask you to raise hands or anything, what was the primary message of the prophets in the Old Testament. It's twofold. If I can, I like to boil things down and keep things simple. Two things. One, a call to repentance. You will find the call to repentance all through all of the prophetic books in the Old Testament. And two, by God's mercy, prophecies of the coming Redeemer, Jesus Christ. And those two things are not unrelated, right? Those are the two things you will see uh, in the prophets. Well, Malachi's message was a burden, It was calling them to repentance. It was threatening God's judgment. And he also prophesied of the coming of Christ. It was a burden. In other words, what Malachi had to say to them and to us was a difficult message to hear. There are elements of strong rebuke and correction for gross sin and also for the empty outward show of religion. 
You know, going through the motions is not a modern day thing. We, we do it in our day, but they did it back then, too. They just had different motions to go through. They had the temple. They had the sacrifices and things like that. And so God threatened chastisement and judgment to them for it and if they didn't repent. And that burden, think about this, though. The burden that Malachi was given to speak to the people, as difficult as it must have been for them to hear, and even sometimes for us to hear, was an act of God's mercy. When God calls us to repentance, it's not God being harsh, it's God showing mercy. If he just wanted to rain down judgment, that's what he would do. But he gives calls to repentance to people that we might turn to him and live. Malachi's message is also the word of the Lord, right? First, it's a burden, and then it's what? The burden of the word of the Lord. So these aren't Malachi's words really at all. It's not Malachi's message. It's God's message to his people. And so we should receive it, and they should have received it that way. And and now think about this. He says it's the burden of the word of the Lord to Israel. There's, there's where we might get lost in the woods a little bit. We think, well, it's to Israel. It was to them. And this, this prophecy is very specific to what they were doing in their day and age, right? But that doesn't mean it doesn't apply to you and me. There's a reason God had it written down for us and not just delivered verbally by Malachi to Israel in his day. It was written down for our own benefit. But it still has as much relevance and application today for us as it has ever had. This book, like the rest of the scriptures, even the Old Testament, Paul says in Romans 15:14, was written for our benefit. There's a reason God had it written down. Romans 15:4 says this about the Old Testament. Paul says, "For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope." So it was written down not just for them, but written and preserved for you and me and for the future generations, however long the Lord may tarry. Paul says something very, very similar in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 6 through 11. Paul says this. Now these things, talking about judgments of God on Israel throughout their history, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. And then he says, do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play, talking about the golden calf. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. We think that's some kind of new thing. No, it's always been the way that people have acted, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. That was written for our benefit. We might go, hey, God takes that rather seriously. God will bring chastisement for that. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Remember the brazen serpent that, that Moses had to lift up? Nor grumble, here's the, you keep saying the same phrase, as some of them did uh, and were destroyed by the destroyer. He's, he's mentioning briefly certain things in the Old Testament history, historical record and saying, here's what they did, here's what God did, don't do what they did. Learn the lesson from, it's always better to learn from someone else's mistakes. Don't learn the hard way, is what Paul is saying. And he says, now these things, these things happened to them as what? As an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. 
All that stuff in the Old Testament, those stories that we read, the stories of God's dealings with his people, they're written for our benefit. The same lessons in the Old Testament apply to us in the New. And so Malachi, the message of Malachi was this burden of the Lord was written not just for Israel in his day, but for our instruction. Uh, and also uh, the things that happened to them were written down as examples for us to learn from. So w- let us be careful to learn our lessons well and take them to heart. Let us learn from the example of the Israelites as it is set before us in the scriptures. Let us go through this, this short book as we go through it. As we go through it, let us be careful to examine our own hearts. That's what we should be doing. Not somebody else's. Not I know somebody else who needs to hear this. No. Examine our own hearts in light of what we see in it. Examine our own lives in light of what we see in the pages of this book. And as the old saying goes, you know, if the shoe fits, you know, sometimes the shoe won't fit. and That's good. If the shoe fits, wear it. Take the lesson that we learn from it and repent in whatever way God calls you to do and turn back from him, turn back from sin to him, that God might send times of refreshing upon us once Again, so we've seen the burden of the word of the Lord. The second thing we see in our text is the love of the Lord. That's a that's a pretty good contrast. The burden, Calvin says, it's ominous. And then the next thing God says is talks about His love. Look, look at verse two. He says, "I have loved you," says the Lord. We should stop there, but it doesn't. But you say, "How have you loved us?" Is not Esau Jacob's brother? Declares the Lord. It's been said, and if you read through Malachi on your own, again, you could do it this afternoon pretty, pretty quickly. It wouldn't take very long. What you'll notice is that they call it a dialectic. It's a dialogue. It's a back and forth between God and his people. But it's not a loving, uh, you know, reciprocating love kind of conversation. It's God saying this and his people talking back, sassing God, so to speak. God says this, and they go, eh, what about this? How about that? Imagine talking to God that way and then not understanding that your heart you have a hard heart that's what was going on here there was this back and forth between God and his wayward people and that's a pattern we'll see repeated as we go throughout this study in the book now it's remarkable that the first thing that God tells his wayward sinning people is that he has loved them you know I always say if we were writing this book we wouldn't have written that God would have just brought out the you know the the, uh, the yardstick or whatever you used to spank nobody spanks these days but you know whatever you would use God would have just broke that out you know broke out the switch but he says I have loved you it's like God is trying to woo them back to repentance by assuring them of his kindness toward them and his love for them he's reminding them of his great steadfast love for them in Christ but look at their reply how that's also a word you'll see repeated throughout this book God says something and they say, how? You've robbed God. How have we robbed God? That's the same kind of thing you're going to see. How? How have you loved us, they said. A callous response to the love of God. Not the kind of thing you want to hear. If, if, if you tell somebody you love them, and I hope that you do tell your loved ones that, that's not what you expect to hear back. Really? You ever had somebody say that? I love you so much. Really? How? It kind of reminds me of the old saying, uh, a lot of old sayings in this sermon, but you know, what have you done for me lately? That's really what they're saying. You know, if you love us so much, why don't you show it? They're saying that to God. You know, we would never say that out loud. We probably think it sometimes. They probably didn't say it out loud either, but they were thinking it too, and God made that, made that plain. And they're not just talking with God. Again, they're talking back to God. That's not a good thing 
to do. You know, we don't like it when our kids talk back and says. Imagine, you know, grown adult believers talking back to God. But God answers their question. He doesn't just say, what? He says, okay, you want to know how I loved you? I'll show you how I've loved you, doesn't he? Look at verses 2 and 3. God tells us, this may sound weird to our ears, but this is God telling them, here's how I've loved you. Verses 2 and 3. Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. You want to know what hate looks like? It's not how I've treated you. Look at Esau. That's really what he's saying. You, you think my harsh treatment of you is an, is an expression of hate. It's not. It's an expression of love. My treatment of Esau, that's an expression of the righteous and just hate of God. So what God does here is he gives them a history lesson. He reminds them of his dealings both with them and more specifically with Esau and his descendants who are known as the Edomites. God's love was demonstrated to them in his gracious election of Jacob over Esau. Jacob and Esau were brothers. They were twins. And yet, which one did God set his love upon before they were even born? Jacob. He chose Jacob. He set his love upon Jacob before they'd ever been born or done anything wrong. Now, when I read that that text this morning from Malachi, you might have been saying to yourself, that sounds familiar. I think I remember that in the New Testament. Paul does quote this passage about Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated in Romans chapter 9. Now that, you know, the, 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 gospel, the gospel of Christ is kind of taught in throughout the book of Romans. Romans is kind of Paul's magnum opus on the gospel of Christ. There in that letter in chapter 9, what he's doing is he's setting out to prove that the Jews' rejection of Christ was not an indication that the word of God had somehow failed. And how does Paul demonstrate that? How is it that he can say God's word didn't fail and here's why? It's because it was never God's purpose, he tells us, to save everyone who was a biological descendant of Abraham, but rather all of those who were the spiritual offering, offspring rather, of, of Abraham and the offspring of God's promise in the gospel. Look at Romans 9, 6 through 13. I need to quote it just for the context. Romans 9, 6 through 13, he says, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. Why? For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But, and he quotes the Old Testament, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named or called. Remember, he had two sons, Ishmael by the slave woman Hagar and Isaac. Which one was the son of the promise? It wasn't Ishmael. God took care of Ishmael. But Isaac was the one through whom his line, his seed, was going to be named or called. This means, Paul says, that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, he's quoted in the Old Testament, book of Genesis, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, here it is, in order that God's purpose of election might continue or stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older shall serve the younger. And here it is, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have what? Hated. 
know, people always say, God hates the sin and not the sinner. Doesn't sound that way, does it? There is a righteous sense in which God hates those whom he has not chosen to save. He certainly hated Esau and his descendants in a very real way. Now, what's he saying? God chose Abraham. Could have chose someone else? Didn't. God chose Isaac instead of Ishmael. God chose Jacob instead of Esau. And all of this was to use Paul's words in verse 11 in order that God's purpose of election might stand. He gives us three generations of election from the patriarchs. God chose this one, not that one. God chose this one, not that one. They were all blood relatives, and yet God distinguished even between them. And that really is the point. And so the doctrine of election, if you understand it in relation to, to, to Romans 9 and Malachi chapter 1, the doctrine of election or predestination, what's it about? Is it just about God being sovereign? No, it is that. It's about salvation being by grace alone rather than works. That's what election is about. That is what predestination is about. That's why God's, Paul says here that it's God's purpose of election. And more than that, according to our text, the doctrine of election according to Malachi 1 is all about the love of God. It's about the love and the grace of God. When Paul says that, that God chose Isaac rather than Ishmael it, and Jacob over Esau, it was in order that God's purpose of election might stand. And what is that purpose? Not because of works, but because of him who calls. He's saying election means the gospel is by grace, not works. God chooses whom he's going to save. And what that means is none of us deserve it. None of us deserve it. That's the whole point. It's all of mercy and of God who calls. And so if you would have a strong grasp of the truth of the gospel, if you would have a strong grasp of salvation by grace alone, and more importantly, even than that, if you would have a strong grasp of the love of God towards sinners, you have to have a grasp of what the Bible says about election and predestination. You will never truly understand the love of God for sinners without understanding that doctrine. That is what Paul says, and that's what Malachi says. When they say, how have you loved us, what does he refer to? Election. Paul says it in black and white in the book of Romans in chapter 9. When, when Paul talks about the blessings we have in Christ in Ephesians chapter 1, what's the very first one he says? He says, in Christ you have every, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Verse 4 of Ephesians 1, even as he chose us in him, that we might be holy and blameless before him in love. It's the first thing that comes to his mind. It's the evidence and proof and demonstration of God's love and his grace towards sinners. So you will never really understand the grace and love of God unless you understand election. Now, the Lord makes his case even further. He just doesn't say, I chose you. That should be enough, but he goes further. He makes his case through the rest of our text that he has loved Jacob and not Esau. And he shows his great love for his people, not just by comparing his disposition, that he loved one and hated the other, but also by comparing his actions toward them. God is, God is saying, look at yourself, Jacob, Israel, the people of God, and now compare how I've treated the Edomites. See how I've treated you, which you think is harsh. I'm paraphrasing you know, God's words here. And then look at how I've treated them. 
and see if it's the same because it's not. It may, you may think it's the same, but it's quite different. He had loved Jacob and hated Esau, but how so? Not only had God chosen Jacob over Esau and set his love upon Jacob from all eternity, but even in more recent history in their own day, he had brought Israel back from exile. God could have left them in Babylon. He could have said, you know what? I'm done. You, you people have done this to me one too many times. I'm done. Stay there. And when Persia came and conquered Babylon, King Cyrus could have just said, I like having these Hebrew slaves. I think I'll just keep them. That's not what happened. God prophesied way before it happened that Cyrus would do it. Called him by name in a previous prophecy and said, Cyrus, and he called him his anointed. Wrap your head around that one. God had chosen Cyrus, put him in place so that he might send his people home by his edict. He allowed them to come home. He returned them back to the promised land and even allowed them to rebuild the temple and have the sacrifices be reinstated. Think about, you know, however many years, how many decades they were in, they were in the exile. How often had they cried out to God for mercy? How often had they said, God, just, we just want to go home. We just want to rebuild the temple and get back to normal. And God finally did it. He chastised them for a time, and then he sent them home. And that brings us to our third point, and the, that's the greatness of the Lord. So you have the burden of the word of the Lord, you have the love of the Lord, and now the greatness of the Lord of hosts. Look at verse 3 and 4, talking about God's dealings with Esau. Verses 3 and 4, God says this, I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to the jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may build, but I will tear down. They will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Jacob got to rebuild. Israel got, God helped them rebuild. They, they could look at the temple and go, look what God let us do. Esau, in their, in, in their pride, the Edomites said, we may be destroyed, but we're going to rebuild. And God says, not so fast. You may rebuild, guess what's going to happen? I'm going to tear it right back down. And they're going to be known as the wicked territory, the wicked country, and the people with whom God is angry forever now. So Israel was allowed to rebuild, but not Edom. The Edomites were the descendants of, of Esau. God, it says, had laid waste his hill country. The Edomites lived up in the hills. And if, if, you, if you're a fan of the Star Wars movies, you might know this tactical information about the high ground. Well, they had the high ground. So they thought, they're good. You know, nothing, can, nothing can touch us. We're up here. We have the tactical advantage. Well, guess what? God was against them, and they, they, were, they lost. They were destroyed, even with their supposedly impregnable defenses up in the hills. God had laid waste to them. God had shattered them by an invading army. If you want to see the, some details of that, read the book of Obadiah. It's only one chapter long uh, for the prophecy of their destruction. And if they tried to rebuild, God was going to tear it down again. They had made themselves enemies of God. Not a good place to be. Why? Why did God tear down and destroy Edom? Why did he threaten and, and follow through with this, this promise or this threat that if they rebuild, I'm going to tear it back down? Well, what would happen was, among other things, when the people of Judah were carried off by the Babylonians, the Edomites sat there and watched. They, they, like remember, remember Jonah? He wanted to have a big view. He was sitting on the hill and had the gourd grow up behind him, and he broke out the popcorn and was hoping to see God raid down fire on Nineveh, and then what happened? Nothing. 
And he was mad. Well, these people got, got one up on him. They got to watch Judah get destroyed. They got to watch the temple be razed to the ground and people carted off as slaves and they gloated. They, did, they were relatives. I mean, Jacob and Esau were brothers. You'd think they would have been like, hey, this is family. Nope. They sat there and watched and they rejoiced over it. They were like, yep, that they got what's coming to them. And God noticed. And God didn't take very kindly to it. Look at Obadiah. I say chapter one. There's only one chapter. Uh, verses 10 through 12. It says this is a prophecy of what God is going to do to them because of it. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you and you will be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof. In other words, they just sat there and watched. Didn't, didn't lift a finger to help. On the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered, entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. They might as well have been Babylonians, is what God is saying. You're as wicked as them. Uh, but do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of of distress, but that's exactly what they did, and so God promised and threatened to tear them down. So not only had God chosen Jacob or Israel and had mercy upon them by bringing them back into the land from captivity and allowing them to rebuild, but he also took notice of Edom's treachery against his people, and he did something about it. That's love. God did not let that one stand. He took vengeance upon them. And think about that. That's a foreshadowing of, of the final judgment of the wicked on the last day. All the different you know, showings of God's judgment throughout the Bible, those are warning shots. You know, when, when Peter, uh, this is off the cuff, I forget if it's first or second Peter, but he says, you know, uh, they're, they're always saying, where is the promise of his coming? You've been talking about the return of Christ all this time. I ain't seen it yet. And what does he say? They deliberately forget that God judged the entire world once before by water. The flood of Noah's day. That was a hint, as the kids say, that God is going to send a worldwide judgment again. Not of water, but of fire. There will be a day of judgment. All these judgments, whether it be on Edom, whether it be on the day of the flood, all these things, um, were, they should be taken as, as warnings by those who don't believe and are still in their unrepentance. You know, Edom had harmed the apple of God's eye, which was Israel, the church in the Old Testament. And what happened to Edom? They're gone. They've been destroyed from the face of the earth, never again to be rebuilt. And the worst thing of all, they would, become to be, they would come to be known as, what does God say there? The people with whom the Lord is angry forever. That should be a frightening warning to the wicked and the unrepentant to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith for salvation while there's yet time. There is a sense in which everyone outside of Christ who is still in their sins is not just under the wrath of God, but they are at enmity with God. They are enemies of God until they are turned to him by his grace. And God's treatment of Edom should be a warning to any nation or terrorist group who would dare to harm the apple of God's eye in persecuting Christians in this or any other day. God will visit for such wickedness, whether it be in Afghanistan, China, Canada or even here God takes notice he might not act as fast as we might wish he would act but God takes notice of these things and he visits 
with judgment upon those who harm the apple of his eye. God tells his people in verse 5, he says that they were going to see this judgment with their own eyes. It wasn't going to come in a future generation where they wouldn't be around to see it. They would see God's judgment come upon their enemies and eat them. Look at verse 5. He says, your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, here's that dialectic again. You know, I say, but you say, just, you're going to say something else. You're going to see me do something to them. And you're going to say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. They would see God at work and they would have themselves, they would speak of the greatness of their God. They would say that God is great even beyond the border of Israel. So his greatness, his power, his majesty would know no bounds. They weren't limited to the land of Canaan or anywhere else. You know, when they were in exile in Babylon, they might have felt like God had left them behind. That God was great back home, but it doesn't seem like he's great here. And here's the lesson God's saying, I'm great everywhere. I'm great beyond the borders of Israel, beyond the borders of anywhere where you might be. I'm at work everywhere, even in sending judgment and in sending mercy. Well, in, in closing, I'd like to quote my old uh, Hebrew professor. He has a commentary on this book, Ian Duggan. And there he writes this. When life is hard, it is tempting for us to doubt God's love. We interpret God's love in the light of his providence. And our consequent doubts about God's attitude toward us can actually make our suffering all the more intense. Malachi is teaching us to interpret God's providence in light of his love rather than reading his love off our interpretation of his providence. You catch that? In other words, we all on our own tend to be the ones that say, what have you done for me lately? If you love me, you've got a funny way of showing it. We sort of think it even if we don't say it. And what, what uh, Dr. Duggan is saying is Malachi's message is just the opposite. Read God's providence, which can be murky and hard to read, through, through what God has said about his love for us. You know, that God has set his love upon you. If you're a Christian, God has set his love upon you before the foundation of the world. He has given you every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He has made it so that not a hair can fall from your head apart from his will. He's made it that all things, all the bad things, Romans 8 says, will work together for your good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. The Edomites and the rest of God's enemies can't say that. Nothing like that is something that they can say. And so I'll ask, are your present circumstances and hardships making you doubt God's love for you in Christ? Then look back to your salvation in Christ and what God has given you, even in setting his electing love upon you, before the foundation of the world and know that God loves you despite how sometimes it may look or feel. God may send and does send hard times to test us. God sometimes sends hard times to chastise us like he did the people of Israel for disobedience and unfaithfulness. He may send hard words, burdens to correct us and call us to repentance. But to who all who are in Christ by faith, this is all evidence and proof of the steadfast love of God to us in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. God chastises every son he loves, Hebrews says. It's an evidence of God's love. So let us not uh, grumble and ask God how he has loved us. Let us rather look at our circumstances with the eyes of faith, knowing that God intends all these things for our good always. And let us then see and confess that great is the Lord beyond all borders or comparison. Amen.